From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. When Rhoda Olson came to work for Great Clips in the 1980s, it was a regional chain of 180 salons. When she stepped down as CEO in 2018, it was a national chain of more than 4,000 salons and with more than one billion in annual revenue. Today, Rhoda is vice chair of the board at Great Clips. She works closely with the leadership team. She spends a lot of her time motivating and inspiring employees, franchisees, and stylists. You know you're doing something right when employees ask to take selfies with you at company meetings. She's the heart and soul of Great Clips and one of the most inspiring and engaging leaders I've had the opportunity to meet. Twin Cities Business is inducting Rhoda into our Minnesota Business Hall of Fame this year, and I had the honor writing a story about her in our July issue. I hope it does her justice, but nothing beats hearing Rhoda tell her story herself. So I'm thrilled she agreed to be here today. Thank you so much, Allison. (laughs) It's so fun talking to you about business and wow, you have a lot of great stories. Well, a lot of stories because I work with a lot of great people. (laughs) Great people make great stories. Well, you have a great story yourself. And I want to start going back just a couple of years to your very first job as a car hop. Okay. (laughs) Okay. My family was fairly entrepreneurial. We were a poor family. And so we looked at every way we could to make money. And um, when I was 13, I started working at a local drive-in called Reed's Drive-In in in Excelsior in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And I was a car hop. And... um, We ran that business, actually. Then we started running it as a family, leasing it. And um, I loved being there because sometimes I could do everything. I could car hop and I could cook the order and I could set up the train. I could collect the money and get the tip. And so it was pretty motivating to me. I liked being in that business environment. It was a fun, active um, environment with, once again, great people in the cars. It was kind of an interesting business. It was an older woman who baked her own baked goods, and so they had great clientele, and it was a very busy, old-fashioned drive-in, Did your drive-in. parents want you to go to work or need you to go to work, or was it your choice at the age of 13? Our parents needed us to go to work. Um, my father struggled, and my mother struggled, and didn't have jobs or didn't keep jobs, and so we struggled as a family, and this was an opportunity for us to make money. And there were a lot of you. you there have... were, yes. You have five siblings? I have five siblings, Mm -hmm. um, four sisters, and one very spoiled brother who owns Great Clips. (laughs) (laughs) We've always always taken care of Ray. Yeah. So it it really was out of necessity, but I think we all really enjoyed it and learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, we actually put ourselves through college running that drive-in. So from the age of 13 all the way through college, we would run that drive-in in the summer and um, take advantage of that learning opportunity and earning opportunity. When you went to college, what did you think you wanted to do? I thought I wanted to save the world. I thought maybe I would be a social worker or a counselor. Um, I wanted to help people, and so I started out in kind of social work and psychology. But actually, when I think about it, I really did 
love and enjoy math more. Mm -hmm. But that was almost 50 years ago. And so when I took my college exams, my entrance exams, my math scores were incredibly high. My father was an engineer. But in those days, women didn't do much math oriented. So then if I had to look at the other options, I kind of liked the helping area, um, social work and psychology. So I got a master's in social work and psychology. um, And then I actually my undergrad in social work and psychology, my master's was in alternative education assessment and training. So I kind of took that HR um, path in business with that background. Okay. And and your brother, meanwhile, was headed straight into business. Straight into business. It took Ray a few colleges to get through college. Um, <laughs> you know, he was, uh, I think, maybe five, and he finally graduated with a business degree in accounting. Um, he became a CPA, which surprised all of us. And he found franchising. He went to work for Century 21. He was their executive treasurer, and he really loved franchising, which is a great business model. So he had the financial back background. He had, um, he was very entrepreneurial. Like I said, I think our family was entrepreneurial from the very beginning, but um, he uh, did have the the franchising and kind of financing background. Did you and Ray ever talk about going into business together? Did you ever think about starting something? Ray and I never really talked about going into business together. Ray was four years older than I was, and that's a lot when you're in Mm -hmm. junior high and high school. So I was only in eighth grade when he left to go to college, and so we were fairly distant. In a way, we had this incredible respect, but we were still a lot of years apart. So we would see one another typically a couple times a year at my mom's birthday in July and at Christmas, and it wasn't that we didn't have a great degree of respect for one another, but you know, your life kind of go different directions. You know, you get married, you have kids, you move different places. Um, so we just kind of had um, really kind of not connected a lot other than those. And one July at my mom's birthday, he asked me what I was doing. And I told him I was at Land Lakes working in HR and training. And he said, well, I think we could use some help. Call this guy, David Rubens, or one of the founders. And he so had I, just started Great Clips. This was like a year in uh, or so? Actually, David Rubens and Steve Lemon were the founders of Great Clips. And they started in July of 1982. And Ray joined them in March of 1983. So Ray was really kind of the founder of the franchise side, but they really were the founders of the brand, David Rubenzer and Steve Lemon, and Ray and I came along later than that. Okay. Ray brought the idea of franchising. Franchising, yes, yes, yes. And why did you all think that that was a good model for a salon? Because Ray thought it was. You know, Ray <laughs> Ray had this incredible ability to see things down the road. He was he clearly was a visionary and he had seen the way that franchising worked for Century Twenty One. Um, he loved the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, David was very charismatic. He was a barber. He was the founder. He could connect in the salons. And Ray saw how important that was. Ray was a barber's franchise, so he also had a salon. So they were connected. Ray was a franchisee for the business that um, David and Steve Lemon had been in previously. So they had known one another there. Mm-hmm. And um, Ray just believed that this was a a very feeling-oriented business, a caring-oriented business, and he believed that that personal touch that franchising provides would be a good fit. So sure. he always believed, he believed in the McDonald's model, a Century 21 model. He believed in franchising, but he also believed that you, that small business um, attitude would, would serve the salon industry well. Sure. So he asks you to come up with a training manual, which you did. Yes. In the car. 
Um, yes. While driving yes, your yes, children yes, around. Yes. So um, two things. When I when Ray and I first connected, I talked with David and they decided that I needed to do some training and I needed to write the training and deliver the training in two weeks. So that was the first thing I did. And then he wanted me to write an operations manual, which I dictated in the car um, going to and from hockey tournaments. It was 416 pages. I had, <laughs> I had um, this would really be, you know, talk about texting. Um, I had notes taped to the steering column and the dashboard, and the boys were way in the back of the station wagon, so they wouldn't disrupt me. Oh and, uh, but they learned a lot, too. They were involved. They listened. They listened to all my dictation. They listened to phone conversations. Um, they learned a lot. They would do salon visits with me. They would do mystery shopping with me. Um, they were very engaged. It was pretty fun growing up in the business. They were 8, 10, and 11 when I started at Great Clips full-time. But you, but there were like five years where you were sort of on the outside. Yes. And then yes. Ray said, come on aboard. Yes. yes. And did you have any hesitation? I, I didn't have much hesitation to join them. Now, when Ray asked that Greg and I invest, I hesitated. Greg is your husband. Yes, my husband and I. And my husband didn't have any hesitation. Um, Greg had watched Ray with an incredible amount of respect. And it just seemed like Ray had these instincts. So Greg was very comfortable. We didn't have any business getting a loan and putting ourselves in more debt. We had three young children, um, but he was very supportive. So, But I Ray joined... wanted you to not only come and work full-time for Great Clips, yes. he wanted you to become an owner. Yes, he wanted me to invest right away. You have little kids, you have a I have mortgage, no cash. I have no, cash. No, no other income. Um, you know, Greg is teaching at that time. Um, he stopped teaching shortly after that and went into commercial construction management. But, um, you know, no, we really didn't have um, much business and we probably wouldn't have been able to qualify for a loan without Ray somehow influencing that. Why um, do you think that Ray did that, though? Because, I mean, that, that has obviously paid off. It, it has. And, and once again, you know, when you talk about leadership and you talk about natural tent, I mean, there are some instincts. Ray had good instincts. For some reason, he thought that I would bring incredible value. He thought that the skills that I had would fit what they needed then. And he didn't want me just to be an employee. He believed that if I were invested, um, that I would make um, a bigger commitment and a stronger focus on making sure that business was successful. Kind of the same as being a franchise yes. owner. Yes, yes. So you start in HR, you are kind of work your way up, and, and Ray, I had the opportunity to speak to Ray about you, and he said that you were, you brought structure that they had the idea, they had the, the financial wherewithal, but, but you brought structure to the organization. Yes, because they all had ideas. So someone needed to provide a structure to assimilate their ideas into an operating system. So you have three strong individuals, and they all have specific skills, but they all um, also have ideas about everything. So in writing an operations manual or developing a training program, we also had to get them to agree. So the processes I brought were really to leverage all of their ideas and talents into something that we could replicate. That's what franchising is about. So the more I learned about franchising, the more I said, you know, you guys can't just kind of do your own thing in your own markets. We have to build a consistent um, system that we can replicate, that we can train, that we can develop, that we can monitor, that we can audit. And so that was my um, early role and early belief. And it fit well for me. I was 
very process oriented, very detail oriented. Um, sometimes you like the numbers. I, I love the numbers, and I didn't know how much I loved the numbers till I got to Great Clips and saw the numbers and the business and the relationship, and then I just couldn't get enough numbers. But what's interesting about you is that you you are a numbers person, but you're also a people person. Yes. Yeah. And I think that seems to be kind of the secret sauce. I think it is. You know, Allison, it's funny because even when we talked before, it's just been recently that I've really been able to combine those well. They were always, everyone thought they were two separate paths that I had. Um, people believe that the kind and caring culture that I helped contribute to in the organization, and let me assure you that Ray and David were two of the most kind and caring people around. It wasn't like they didn't already have a foundation of that. But I would say we became more conspicuously kind and responsive and listened and all of those kinds of things, you know, that I had that side very clearly. Then I also um, really developed an intensity around numbers and data. And eventually I realized that they fit together a lot more than people think. They so? think they're They think they're separate. Uh-huh. And I would say that if you have a caring, kind culture, when you share with someone the numbers that say that they aren't doing well, they accept them very differently. So you have numbers so you can build business, provide feedback, look at the results, share that feedback. But without the relationship, is it going to drive any change? So I think what, what I learned was that the better numbers and data that you can have along with the relationship, that was a powerful way to drive success. Because because if you knew I cared about you, when I shared with you some of the very weak numbers in your business, you really believed it was still part of the caring. And it is. There's nothing more caring than being honest with someone and not letting them fail and even being pretty direct and blunt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think people see a very kind side of me. There would be some people that would say that I can get pretty um, brutally honest as well when I need to. And that's, you know, that's driven by the numbers and trying to get people's attention And if you care deeply, how can you not provide someone with honest feedback and critical data and help them understand what they're doing wrong in their business? It seems odd to me that people would want to protect someone because they cared about them from the honesty that they need in order to build their business or their career, um, you know, or themselves. Right. The facts are the facts. And if you just face them, then you can deal with them. So when in those early days when you were in HR and working on training, did you think to yourself, I'm going to run this company one day? Absolutely not. Allison, I think... um, I'm kind of an old gal. I'm approaching my <laughs> 70s, you know, and, and, and it's funny because I think um, one of the things that I think about young women today, I love the fact that they can see themselves in different positions. I think I just saw myself working really hard and doing as well as I could and excelling in what I was doing. Ray was the one who saw that I could step into a different leadership position or take on more. He had more, maybe more confidence in me than I had in myself. Now, Did you have female role models in the business world? Did you have mentors? I really Really, there weren't many. There weren't many. I was at Land Lakes. That was very male dominated. I was when I was. I worked some with some university professors in Mankato. That was a little bit broader. Then I was in the insurance business, very male dominated. So no, there weren't a lot of female role models. Although my mom was a business person, mm-hmm. um, and she struggled as a business person, and she actually became a Great Clips franchisee and really succeeded. Um, so my family's involved as well. But no, there weren't a lot of um, female role models. So it wasn't possible. You didn't say, "Well, I want to be." a CEO because all the CEOs were men. Hmm. 
But Ray saw that. Ray absolutely saw it. And um, and he pushed me. I mean, Ray not only pushed the company and had a clear vision, he also saw my capabilities different. Uh, different. He saw my capabilities differently. I have to watch my use of the English language. My, <laughs> okay. my father would be mad. <laughs> so the for going from 180 salons, which is a, a, a good number, yes. but up to now it's, what, 44? Almost 4,500. Almost How do you do that? Was it has it been steady growth the whole way? How did you it grow? Has. We've had kind of a little, a few bursts here and there, um, but for the most part, Allison, it's been steady. And sometimes I will say to people, you know, four or five percent growth a year may seem boring to some people, but when it goes on for fifteen or twenty years, it's not so boring anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is, we aren't a business that has huge ups and downs. We've tried to build. Um, some predictability and consistency into the into the model, so we don't grow too fast. We don't add too many salons. We don't oversaturate a market. Um, we try and be very diligent and disciplined about how we add salons, so we don't damage the existing franchises. So they want to continue to build and expand. So if you think about a franchise model, you can grow very well if your existing franchisees are happy. It's that simple. Um, I, you know, when I finally, I shouldn't say finally figured out. Ray certainly knew. David understood that if the franchisees weren't successful, you weren't going to grow. I really believe that they weren't happy we weren't going to grow. And they can be two different things, by the way. Mm-hmm. Franchisees can be, you know, making money and not be happy. So, um, and happy is one of those maybe overused words, but I really believe that they needed to be happy and engaged in order to continue to build the business. So, How do you do that? How do you make people happy? Well, you know, we always hear about leaders can't motivate, you use the word motivate and inspire, but you can build an environment where people want to succeed and you give them enough feedback and you engage them in a culture. A lot of our franchisees came from bigger business where they weren't valued, they weren't listened to, they got tired of the corporate world. So as a franchise, if we can build that um, culture of kindness and caring and build community. So every one of our markets is like an indiv- individual franchisee community. So in Atlanta, there are 20 franchisees. Those franchisees form a community and they support one another. And that's what we build is that franchisee. We select the right franchisees. We put them in what we call a co-op. We build that sense of community. And actually, Allison, they begin to be committed to one another. And so they don't want to mess up the business because their friends are in the business. Hmm. And so every one of those co-ops become kind of a community. And then the community as a whole grows as you get those people together. So I think the way you grow is one franchisee at a time, opening one salon at a time, caring about that manager and that staff. It really is still one at a time. Um, You know, we went over $1.5 billion in revenue, and I often say to people, it's just zeros. It still happens one haircut at a time, one stylist at a time. You can't, you can't forget that. That's why we ask our franchisees to stay involved in the salons, our executive staff are in the salons. You've got to, I think maybe that's another thing, Allison, is just staying connected to where the business happens. When you get bigger, you can get disconnected. So I think you go from 180 to 4,500 4, by franchisees who are really committed to building their organizations and their teams. Right. Because the, the thing that seems tricky to me is, on the I get all of the advantages of the franchise model, but as the ownership, you're giving up control. Yes. And you have to rely on these people that they're going to have the same quality standards and attitude that you do. What if they don't? 
Well, it, it's a good question. It's why selecting the right franchisees is so important. And we're like a lot of other franchisors. We've had to learn that and relearn that. Um, adding the right quality franchisees is key to that. And then the way you manage them. You know, Allison, every franchisor has an FDD. They have a, a franchise disclosure document that legally controls that relationship. And it allows us to use that um, agreement to force compliance, to, you know, force force them to do the things we want them to do. I would tell you in our organization, we pull out that FDD in a franchise discussion once a year. I mean, we just, we basically say, listen, if you have to go to the FDD in order to solve an issue with the franchisee, you haven't built the right relationship. Hmm. You haven't given them, the right, given them the right background about the decision. You haven't done your diligence related to, if we can't influence, we're all franchised. So we don't have corporate stores. So we also have to engage franchisees to test for us. So if we can't convince these folks who are very committed to their business, who have invested their money, that one of our business strategies or a change or a piece of data or a new piece of equipment isn't worthwhile, we haven't done our homework. Hmm. And so we work really, really hard to get them committed to everything that we do. So we do that before we force it on them. So we build, it, we'll, we'll, we build any initiatives and programs from the ground up with them. So one of the nice things in this day and age about a salon business is you can't get your hair cut over the internet, right? That's right. It's something you still have to show up for, which is very nice. Um, At the same time, you were the one within Great Clips who said, we need to embrace technology. Why? How, what did you see and how did you incorporate that? You know, it's interesting because I love technology and I love data. And I I know data probably better than technology. I think I've always felt like um, I knew what I didn't know. So when it came to technology, I made sure I listened to the right people and I learned and I paid attention. And I believe that technology, we're, we're a non-clientele-based salon business. So we want people to be loyal to the brand. So I saw that technology might be able to build a bridge around our brand to keep people connected, not specifically to the stylist, but to the brand. So mm. online check-in was a great product that our vendor de- our vendor developed, Innovative Computer Systems. Peter Kaiser, um, who's the owner of that company and founder, developed it himself and brought it to us. And I was just, it was like, we have to do this. And it took us a long time to get that launched because it was different than what people believed in the salon business. Um, The salon business was always one-on-one clientele, go to the same stylist, request. And this whole notion was, no, we want them to come to the business. We want them to engage in the business. So you developed an app that allowed people to, what, to see wait times, to check in? It was our vendor, ICS, that developed that app and brought it to us. And then we had to sell it to the franchisees. And it's, it's almost in its original form, Allison. So it's an incredible app that allows you to look at every salon location and their wait time updated to the current 30 seconds and customized for that salon with a very sophisticated algorithm that even considers individual stylist haircut time. So all of a sudden, so, I look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, I need a haircut right now. I can open up the app and say, oh, there's no wait there's at this no location. Wait. Yep. Or, or there's a 32-minute go- wait, so I'm going to go grab my laundry before I go in. Okay. And about 90% of the time, you wait less than five minutes, so you don't have to go and wait in the lobby. What did that do for the business? It changed that? the business. It increased our loyalty. The people who use the app were carrying around great clips on their phone. It positioned us as kind of a tech-savvy player in the marketplace. Um, 
10 million people have downloaded that app. So 10 million folks have that app on their phone and they use it. About 40% of our customers check in online. Um, There are other customers that don't necessarily check in online, but they use the app all the time Mm -hmm. to check the wait time and see when they'll come in. And Uh, then you also added um, the ability for people to leave reviews. Yes, yes. Why did you want to do that? Well, that online check-in is the key component of our app, but we put that inside an app so we can communicate with customers. So we want reviews. We want them to um, be able to customize their favorite location so they'll show up when when they sign in or they check in. So we wanted the ability to provide a little bit more communication with the customer beyond that online check-in. That still drives most of the interaction, but customers are getting more engaged with the other elements of that app as well. There was a certain point, um, remind me what year, when business for the first time started to yeah. slip a little bit. 2004, 2005. This um, was after, like your entire career yes, with Great Clips had been yes, nothing but, yes, but yes. upswing. Yeah, it really had been. And in fact, it's interesting because if you split our business into two segments, it would be before 2004, we had um, consistent growth from ni- 1982 to 2004. And then we kind of lost our footing. And then 2006 on, we've had consistent growth. So there was just a couple years in the middle there where um, we struggled, and our customer count started to decline in late 2004. So it wasn't. It's interesting because so many businesses, so many entrepreneurs we've talked to, it was the recession that was the turning point. Yes. That was when they had yes. to innovate. That it was before the recession. It was before for you. the recession, which probably positioned it was probably lucky, and probably positioned us well going into the recession because we had to scramble like hell in 2004, 2005 to kind of figure out how we were going to tackle the challenges in the market. Marketplace. So what happened? It's just you're a numbers person. You're looking. All of a sudden, things are just dropping. Well, they aren't. They aren't dropping really quickly. They're dropping um, slowly, um, but we aren't paying attention. You know, it's interesting because when do you react? You know, if you're a business person and you've had 15 years of great growth, do you react to a quarter? Do you, I mean, how, you know, now we really pay attention and try and react um, pretty quickly, even market by market. But, you know, we were a little bit naive about what was happening. And all of a sudden it was like, OK, now we've been down two quarters in a row related to customer counts. Um, sales were starting to decline. Profits were getting hit pretty quickly. So and, you know, it's one of those things where you don't know exactly what it was, but the competitive activity was really high. Um, we had opened a lot of salons. Staffing was a little bit more difficult. It was, you know, our salons were probably a little little more run down. The competitor salons were new. Mm. Um, You know, just a lot of different things. Our pricing had probably gotten a little bit high. There were a number of things that we think contributed to that. And then to compound all of this, you got sick at the same time. But it was all probably, you know, interesting because it all worked together in in a positive way. I was diagnosed with uterine cancer in um, late 2004, about the same time we started to decline. So it was a little bit challenging in the business environment. And but we had a great team. We had started we had started a project to really look at our brand. We called it the brand evolution or brand strategy, where we really wanted to look at our brand and how it was different than the competitors because we were getting kind of in a sea of confusion. People didn't know the difference between cost cutters and great clips and supercuts and and so we had to differentiate ourselves and that was the time when we really believed that was important. So we started that late two thousand four and worked on it into two thousand five and I was out for a short period of time. Um, but 
then I did come back and was able to engage as we really, really find that we did a lot of research about what the customer wanted, um, what was different, how we could make it more emotional, how we could leverage the skills that we had. So wait, back up one second. You, you are, things aren't great, but at the same time, you're, you're fighting cancer. Yes. Yes. That must've been really hard. You are a workaholic. Yeah. A little bit. Can we say that? Yeah. Do you cringe at that? I I mean, you like to work. I I do like to work. And you had never not worked. I never. And you juggled work and three kids and a husband and everything else. Three boys, I might add. Yes. Not just three kids, three boys. I hear you. (laughs) Um, And was that sort of the first time that you were, you were kind of forced to to slow down. It, it was. And it was, and I really did have to pretty much stop doing anything for about four or five months. Now, it's not true. I would meet one of the executive staff before radiation treatments in the afternoon. Um, but I really... Your version of slowing down. Yeah, but I really, I really, you know, you really do have to get into a self-preservation mode. You don't think a lot about work. Mm-hmm. And of course, that caused everyone concern because the company was struggling a bit. So when I came back, was it going to work? How was it going to work? Did I have the energy to get it turned around. Um, What did you, what did that time do for you? I mean, besides obviously, thankfully, successfully fighting cancer, but, but I mean, how did that change your approach or how you thought about the business? I think it changed a couple of things. First of all, I I like the notion that um, someone talked about, you put on a new pair of glasses. So after you have cancer, everything does change. Everything looks differently. You value your health differently. And I was fairly health conscious before, but you really do appreciate your health and you, you do get a sense of renewed commitment to take a little better care of your yourself. And for me, that was sleep. Um, you know, that was the thing that I probably had compromised the most. I thought if I did the other things well. So I did, my body pretty much screamed, you need to take better care of me. And I, and I did that. What, what had you been averaging a night before? I thought sleep sometimes was just an unnecessary reality. Um, <laughs> I really did. I bet, I bet, you know, when the boys were younger and stuff, I think three or four hours may have been, been just fine, maybe five on the weekends. Um, but I didn't need a lot of sleep either. And I didn't really realize that. I mean, I would encourage everyone out there. I didn't have any risk cancers for uterine cancer at all. Um, I think now they're determining that sleep is probably one of the biggest risk factors. Hmm. And if it makes sense because sleep restores your cell structure and cancer is a problem with your cell structure. So hmm. I think sleep was really my risk factor. And at that, how old were your kids at that time? Well, my kids were 8, 10, and 12 when I started at Greg Clips full-time in 87. And they were done with college. College by 98. So when I when I was diagnosed with cancer, they were out of the house. Okay. All right. And but, so they they helped me then. <laughs> but during that's nice. Um but during the the time when they were growing up and you had three hockey players? Three boys in three and a half years, all hockey players. Oh wow. That's a um, lot. Yeah. Um and you were a very and I, I had the opportunity to talk to one of your kids too. And I mean they they say that you were a very involved mom. They knew that you were the boss and you were running a big company, but they never felt like you chose work over them, which is kudos to you. That's quite an accomplishment. Well, how did you do that? They may be a little generous. I think, I think it's, I think it's focus and I think it's communicating your commitment. I think it's unrealistic for people women or men to think that life isn't going to be crazy. And I use the word interval. There were times like I I would have to go just really, really hard at work. And then there were times I'd have to go really hard at home. And I think as long as you build, and once again, I'm going to use a structure process around that. 
I talked to him every night. We had a master calendar. They knew what I, where I was going. They knew what I was doing. My suitcase was by the door. They knew they needed to clean off the car, shovel the driveway, <laughs> put my suitcase in the car. I mean, we had we did have a lot of things that provided some structure and support for them. Mm-hmm. When I was home on the weekends, I traveled to their hockey hockey tournaments with them. So I was on the road with them. Greg would stay home because he was usually coaching one of them. So um, that gave me one-on-one time. So some of those things, I think, helped. But I think they they also are probably a little generous. I think there were times when it was probably pretty difficult for them. Um, my husband was very committed. He had a job that allowed him flexibility. Um, he was very supportive of my career. Um, but I think it's pretty silly to say that there weren't times when I probably messed up, too. Well, we all mess up. <laughs> but they knew I cared. They knew I would be there. I did you know, algebra homework over a fax machine. Um, you know, I we they would send you the yes, problems yes, and you yes. would check I the would, work. I would check into the hotel, usually at the Hampton Inn, and the guy knew me. He would hand me the homework. I would go to my room. I would do the homework. I would fax it back, call, and walk through the problems with with the guys. Uh-huh. Um, and because um, Greg wasn't very math oriented, so. <laughs> well, we just need one in a relationship. Right. Um, what do you think your sons? gained or how do you think it has impacted them to to have a mom who was a CEO of a large company? I think, first of all, they they do certainly look at women differently, I would hope. I think they look at their role differently in the the home. Um, I think they learned a lot about business just by listening and observing. Um, I would like to think that they um, believe that Life can be pretty tough for everybody, and and people do have to work really hard, and and that it's not easy. Um, you know, I think they value hard work. I think they probably value some of the other things that you know, kindness and caring, and some of the things that we tried to make sure that they were respectful and kind and hardworking. We knew they might mess up from time to time, but. Those were kind of core um, to what we believed in. But I think they ga- they gained a lot of information, too, Allison. I think they're exposed to a lot, you know, when they're in the car and they're listening and they're kind of part of your thinking and they listen to, um, you know, what you talk about. And my son Ben and I went to a hockey tournament. I think it was Rochester, and I had done a legal workshop. And we were dictating the legal questions and answers all the way to him from Rochester. So he'd read the question, mm-hmm. and then I'd do the answer on dictation, huh. and he'd number the question. So they learned just a ton. Yeah, you gave um, him a mini MBA course by, by in the car. Yes, and then my husband, who's a um, was an industrial arts teacher and a commercial construction manager, taught him all the other stuff. So they had both sides. They can repair a roof. They can repair a snowmobile. They can rebuild an engine. They can do all of that stuff as well as... Um, have a good sense of business and working with people. What do you, when you look around today, look around the great Clips office and and just, you know, beyond, I know you're very involved in the community um, and you see, you know, there are more women leading. There are more women at the top. Women today, girls today probably do grow up thinking I'm going to be the boss. Uh, What what do you think? What, What advice do you give women today? How do you think things have evolved? I think it's a it's a great time to leverage the talents that women have. Um, you know, 
we're often considered a little emotional and believe that's a disadvantage. I believe it's the biggest strength we have, and we shouldn't shy away from the fact that it is a strength and that having an emotional connection and using a depth of caring. I remember when people would call me mom in the office, I would think that was kind of an insult. I think it's one of the biggest um, compliments anyone can give me. So I Hmm. think women need to take advantage of that innate talent and all the other skills that they have. And they do need to do a better job of visioning. Women are usually more process-oriented, as I've talked about. It took me time to really understand what it meant to develop a vision and to paint a picture for people of what you want and what you see in the business. And women need to do that more. What they want for themselves or for the business? and for the business. Themselves and the business. I think we're reluctant to do both. Hmm. Um, We're reluctant to say, this is where I see myself. And we're also reluctant to say, these are the things that I think are most important as company grows. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and paint a picture of why kindness and data and discipline might be the three most important things going forward or, or why it is as a person you want to continue to learn and develop and grow and always accept feedback, whatever it is. But to be able to really look down the road and you know consciously think about what do you want yeah. and say it. We aren't supposed to talk about what we want. We're always right. worried about what everybody else wants. Mm-hmm. And so consciously say that. And then I think my granddaughter is are going to be 14. And when I listen to her and I think about the experiences they've had in, in sports and a lot of other things also, that really helps build their confidence and they can see themselves differently. So when I ask Emily what she wants to be, when I was 13 or 14, I didn't even really know about careers. So I ask Emily what she wants to be, and she wants to be a pediatrician, but maybe a pediatric anesthesiologist. Mm. And I'm going, I didn't even know what those were. So I also think women, young women, need to really get be exposed to all the different careers and opportunities, and especially business. Um, I had this social work psychology bent believing that I really wanted to help people. If women could understand that business may be the single most important way to impact people, um, I think they would look at business differently because what else can you do that gives people a different livelihood, an opportunity, an a, a way to support their family, a way to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is one of the most important things, and I never really thought about that when I was looking at social work and psychology, that business was as much about helping people as any of those other careers that women typically look at. Sure, makes sense. So you have this health crisis. You get back to work in 2005 and quickly get back on track. You yes. haven't had a... Um, we, we had a positive quarter first quarter 2006 and we have not had we have had what is it 50 plus consecutive quarter of same salon um, sales growth since first quarter 2006 not one bad quarter not that's one, amazing no, not how in, not did you sales, do yeah. that slow and steady Allison um, and sticking to I would say the other thing that in a franchise organization as you grow um, as you get bigger, keeping things simple, that's one of Ray's words. Simple and focused is the single most important thing. The only way you can, if you have different messages, so we've been very consistent. We have a very clear brand structure. We have key words and descriptions of behaviors. We have key metrics. Everything we do evolves around those. Our recognition, our training, our everything focuses on those. So having that consistent set of messages along with 
challenging your thinking and having data when the numbers don't look good. So you change your marketing strategy, you change your trial generating, you use technology differently. It's not that you don't change, but you keep that core solid and you innovate around it based on the data and what the data tells you isn't working quite as well and what other things may work better and you implement those as fast as you can, which is also hard sometimes in a franchise structure to implement quickly. There's just as much competition today, isn't there, as there was when things faltered a little bit. Yes. So what's the difference? There is more competition. I think we have a core of really strong franchisees who are so committed to building their organizations. Allison, you know, I think you saw the culture at the office and you talked to people. We're 250 people organization. We have franchisees. At headquarters. At headquarters. Here in the Twin Cities. Yes. But we have franchisees who have 250 to 500 employees whose organizations feel as strong as that. They've built a lot of organizations that have some of the same values and commitment. And that just does tons to get through the recession, um, to get through. We're, we're fairly recession-proof because we're at the low end of the cost structure anyway. So getting things squared away in 2006 going into the recession really helped us. What are your haircuts cost these days? Um, 14 or $15. Oh, that is a good deal. It is My a great goodness. deal. It's who, a great deal. Who, do you always get your hair cut? I do. Great clips? I do. Now, I get my hair colored, and we don't do color. Oh. So I do have to go somewhere else to get my hair Did colored. Did you think but, about adding color? Well, it's just way too complex. It really it really creates kind of damages a simple model. Mm. And a lot of our customers are men, and we're very efficient base. So, you know, colors would really complicate that because colors, when you talk about colors, there are like 50 different kind of colors. So it just, it really is to keep that pretty simple and focused. Who is the target demographic? Who is the main customer for Great Clips? Um, 20 to 40 year old men, primarily women, secondarily. So about 60% of our customers are men, but they account for just over 70% of our visits because they get their hair cut more often. Mm -hmm. About 40% are women and they get their hair cut less often or like me, they may go somewhere in between their haircuts because they get their hair colored. And then we have children as well. But it really, so it's it's kind of that active lifestyle. Allison, if you were to develop more of a psychographic, it's that active lifestyle. People who don't want to waste money, people who see good value, people who understand that. I mean, you can get a great haircut. For, our stylist do better haircuts than anybody in a full-service salon because they do more of them. I mean, mm-hmm. they do two or three or four times as many haircuts as someone may do in a full-service salon. They're really good at haircuts. So, um, you know, when you realize that you can get a gray haircut for 14 or $15, why would you spend $50? Right. And, I mean, value is always yes. a, a big sell. Yes. You, don't, you don't see that going out of style. Right, right. There's always a value customer. Right. Um, so just last year, you transitioned into the role of vice chair of the board and are no longer CEO. How hard was that for you? It was hard. You like control a little bit. It was funny. (laughs) I I told Steve Hockett I kept my CEO cards for a while. I couldn't part with them. And then I finally... He's um, the new CEO. Yes, yes, yes. And Steve and I have a great relationship. It's been really pretty... Um, easy in some ways, you know, I think it's been easy from a business standpoint, but sometimes it's kind of hard for me sure. not to say I'm CEO because vice chair sounds like, well, what do you really do? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do? What do I do? Well, I work with Steve, the CEO, and Rob pretty regularly. I'm involved in strategic planning. I'm involved in all the key meetings. I do speaking at our annual events. 
Um, I'm on the road. I'm still in salons and going to co-op meetings and working with franchisees and really pretty much at Rob and Steve and the other executive staff's direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so, so how it works you, out pretty well. How did you know it was time or, you know, why did you decide to, to transition out of the CEO Well, role? when I became sick, I would say that both Ray and I um, realized we didn't have a great succession plan. And we were very, very focused on long-term succession. So we really kind of mapped out a 10-year plan. And, um, you know, at that point I became CEO. But I also knew that there would be another step in that pretty quickly, um, you know, I guess seven years. Um, you know, there would be a time when I would need to step aside. And once you have people developed, if you don't give them a chance, it's frustrating to them. Hmm. So I think I think the time is not when you're ready. It's when they're ready. Interesting. And and they were ready. And um, Ray is still involved yes, as well. Yes, Ray is chairman of the board. And um, he's a little more distant from the organization than I am, but he certainly has an influence. He still, he still is... Um, he has his stamp. His focus is simple, consistent. Um, he's very got a very strong financial mind. He's kept us in great financial health. Um, he still has a very clear vision of where we need to be. So, and and it's a it's he he owns a majority part of the business. He intends it to be a family business for a very long period of time. That's part of the succession as well. Everybody knows that, um, and that kind of gives people comfort as well. One of your sons is now a franchise owner. Yes, he is. What is that like yes. for you? My son, Ryan, my oldest son, and his wife, Krista, are franchisees. They became franchisees in November last year. I had told them all along that I didn't think that was going to work because we had a non-compete clause um, in some of our employee um, handbooks because I believed early on that it would be a conflict for employees to be franchisees. A lot of other organizations like that. Um, we thought it would create a problem. So... Um, but I, well, once I stepped aside and I was no longer an employee, they actually were um, talking with some of their cousins. In fact, my son Ryan and Krista bought salons from another family member. Hmm. So they kind of had the deal already going before they really communicated to me. Ryan said he always wanted to be a part of Great Clips. He watched it from early on. They were at every convention. My boys have been at every convention since 1998. So wow. they watched it. You know, he said, I always wanted to be a part of that legacy, Mom. So it was really exciting to have him and his wife join us last November. It's been pretty fun to have them around. And and um, it's kind of odd, too, because all of a sudden I see my son in a meeting and go, what's he doing here? <laughs> right. He told me how going to a convention, people would be like, ta- like see you coming down the hall and be like, oh, my gosh, that's Rhoda Olson. And he'd be like, hey. Hey, mom. <laughs> you know her? Yeah, yeah, that's mom. <laughs> He's had some fun with that. He's been pretty inconspicuous about it, but occasionally when it comes up, he always enjoys people's reaction. You are pretty magical on stage. I heard you for the first time last year at a women venture event, I think, and you certainly know how to hold the attention of a room and you talk about your story and leadership. And I know that that's part of what you still do for yes. the Great Clips team. What's the secret? Did you know you'd be good on stage? Well, my boys would tell you that I wasn't very good for a long time, and they were some of my primary uh, critiquers. Ah. They would always give me feedback at conventions, and they helped develop my speaking skills. I think, Allison, once I really focused on... 
um, the experiences and the connections that I saw live, both for myself and for stylists and customers. Once I stopped trying to speak and started telling stories and started sharing, um, even some of my personal background, we, I had a franchisee who was really clear that when he heard that my father was a chronic abusive alcoholic, my mother battled depression, I took my, I had to take my senior prom date to the lock psych ward, and I say it very <laughs> casually. And you he, sure do. And he said, and he said, you know, people, our staff need to hear that. And I thought, why would our staff need to hear that? And what he was saying was that whole notion that, you know, people keep pretending that their lives are perfect, and no one's life is perfect. So, if you share that, you give everybody else an opportunity to feel like they aren't alone. And they can do whatever they need to do. And so it was Joe Kissick, one of our franchisees, who pushed me on that. And so the first time I shared that was at our 30th convention. Hmm. And I don't about hesitate. About your own parents. Yes. And, and, and it was kind of a time to reflect and talk about kind of how we got to where we were. So it fit in with the history message. But it, but I think once you realize that some, you, when you try to speak, somehow, sometimes you try so hard to make stuff up instead of using real stuff. And if you can use real stuff, it's a lot more powerful. If you can share customer stories through the stylist eyes and, and recognize their efforts, if you can um, share franchisee stories and talk about the way that they um, leverage their skills and their unique talents, it just feels so much different than speaking. Mm-hmm. And once you get comfortable saying, you know, I mean, my my life's not perfect. My boys aren't perfect. My husband's pretty much almost perfect. But, you know, once <laughs> once you can say that out loud, you know, people respond to that. And it's you all of a sudden feel like I'm not speaking anymore. We're just talking. And I feel strongly that um, people do learn by listening. And if they hear something from me that might help them, because I hear stuff from them all the time that helps me that that's worthwhile. And um, I think I have a reasonably good sense of humor. So I I, I try and make sure that I, I laugh and joke about myself because sometimes women don't have a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. My husband would say I don't have a really good sense of humor at home. <laughs> I use it all up at work. But um, I think just being truthful about your situation and taking yourself not quite so seriously sure. um, really helps. You are at a point where you can you can make the rules, you can do what you want, you could set your hours, but you still go to work pretty much every day. I do. I do. But actually, Allison, when I started this, I was going to try and get Wednesdays off. It's been a year and a half, and I actually got last Wednesday off. You did? <laughs> That's the first time? <laughs> what, did you have to ask permission? What did no, you do? No, it's been marked off on my calendar. It's uh, Dee's been marking it off on my calendar, but it just keeps getting filled in. Uh-huh. And so all of a sudden, it didn't get filled then I said, Greg, I'm going to be home today. Um, Was he shocked? Did you know what to do with yourself? I did. I did. I'm having an event at my house next Sunday. So I was getting ready for that. And it gave me some breathing space. But, um, you know, I like being in the office, but I think I'm going to learn to step away a little bit more. My sister, my twin sister became critically ill the beginning of May. And it was really nice to be able to be with her for a couple of weeks and not worry at all about the business. So I'm learning the value of some of those things. And even if I'm in the office, I'm not as stressed. So it's more fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Our executive team and and Steve and Rob get all the pressure and I just get to be there. So it's a little bit easier. It's not quite as stressful. So it's fun to be there. Yeah, that's a great place to be at, right? Yes. You earned that. Yes. That's for (laughs) sure. Um, One last thing I want to ask you about. 
about that is some of the volunteer work that you do um, overseas, too. It's all about entrepreneurship. It is. It is. You know, it's it's funny, Allison, because people always say, what is your cause? And it just evolved, you know, just evolved for me. Um, you heard me at Women Venture. I've been involved in NABO. I've been involved in WPO. I'm really committed to women in business. And one of our franchisees in Canada, who is a South African citizen, went back to South Africa in 2007 and started a microfinance called Pakamani, um, which supports female entrepreneurs in these very poor communities. And so it's just been wonderful to be involved and watch the power of that entrepreneurial spirit and the strength of women build these build their own little teeny businesses and then build their communities. And so I'm really involved with them. I take a group down every year to South Africa to see their work, and then we do some tourist things as well. Um, but Pakamani just is just has active client base of about 31,000 right now, 31,000 women who have a business supported by a microfinance loan, and it's changing their life. Poverty is so rampant in those communities. A $200 loan can change their lives hmm. and sustain a, a business model in those communities that strengthens both the family and the community. So it's just an, an incredible model. Um, Pakamani is a great organization, but I would encourage any women or men who support um, entrepreneurial um, ventures to look at microfinance. It's an incredible way to impact poverty in these countries where there's no jobs. I mean, it's not like they can go out and get a job. They have to build something themselves. Um, it's just a great model. Mohammed Yunus won a Nobel Peace Prize for that model. And um, it's just an incredible model when you see it at work. You're creating opportunity. Yes, yes. Rhoda Olson, yes. thank you so much for sharing your story and being here today. Lovely to talk to you always. Thank you, Allison. Stick around. We're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. That's next. Leading with heart, emotion, integrity, those are tough things to teach, but we're going to try. Let's go back to the classroom with Mike Porter, faculty director of two healthcare programs here at the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business. He's taught entrepreneurship and marketing. He's worked for decades with early stage businesses. So Mike, thank you for being here. Welcome to be here. Um, and tell us what stood out to you in listening to Rhoda Olson speak. What, what stood out to you about her approach to leadership? You know, one of the things about about Rhoda is there's it's that consistency and genuineness right and it's real I was as I was listening I was like I can it's kind of like listening to Mary Jo Copeland if you know who she is yeah. right you know there that level of heart and and both of those women have um it it is it is a part of who they are and it you can't have those discussions without it coming through one of the things that I noticed when she was talking to you you know she uses your name mm-hmm. and she uses it regularly and and that's that can be effortsome, right? It can be. It can be something where it's it's. Um, it, you can tell the person's trying too hard, and for her, it's just a part of who she is. Totally. She remember who she's talking to. She actually knew who I was. Well, <laughs> but or, you feel more. You feel and, special. And and I and I know enough about her organization to know that that's probably the way that she approaches things when she's dealing with her staff of of you know a couple of hundred at, here mm-hmm. in Minneapolis right and then and, thousands when you're talking about the franchisees and all the stylists well, and those and, people are not her 
employees per se. They're the franchise or the franchisees' employees. But when she interfaces with the franchisees, she is in. It's that same kind of a thing. And you know, one of the things that might have been a cast off in what she, she talked about, she took her kids mystery shopping with her, right? Mm-hmm. And then she's literally in in the presence of these people. She knows what it's like to be those people and so on. And that helps you know, pull it through. As her business grew, the amazing thing is that as that business grew, she kept that and the the business grew, but she didn't lose that. It's still right. evident in the way that they handle things with their franchisees. So I think it's it maybe just being a little more conscious about it being okay to to show a little emotion and and to bring your heart to work. Well, that it doesn't undermine. If, if that's the, the person you are, right, and if that's the leadership style that you are are embracing, um, leadership's a complicated thing. Um, and as soon as you start trying to do it in a way that's not true to yourself. Now, it would have been really difficult for her to follow through on that if the rest of her partners in this business were not on board and and their family members, right? So they're cut from similar cloth. Um, I'm on the board of uh, some family-owned businesses, and they're they're not always cut that consistently either, Mm -hmm. right? Even in a small small family. So to have everybody in the senior team on board is the only way that you're going to be able to have this go on consistently. And and whether it is written down per se, this is how we're doing this, or whether you are, it just is a natural outflow of, of the, your approach. Um, that consistency, I'm a big consistency person, right? You know, all the, all the things need to align. You right. can't just say, oh, well, we're doing this. It would have been easy to say, well, this is how we treat franchisees and then forget to treat the internal people in the, with the same respect mm-hmm. right and and I don't think Rhoda has that in her she there she can't differentiate that way right so. but that that works that's kind of what absolutely. that's the magic absolutely. of what works for her so and I, and it and it changes the kind of franchisee or relationship you know and one of the things we could talk about is the the relationship between a franchisor and a franchisee, because many of the listeners of this podcast may look at and say, oh, hey, there's this new company and I could be a franchisee and it's going to cost me X number of dollars and so on. One of the things that's important to ask yourself in those situations is what relationship really does the franchisor want to have with me as a franchisee? Mm. Um, because that can be really difficult. Um, and by taking a good close look at the contracts and, and how they set things up, you can learn some of those things. Some of the things that Rhoda does that, you know, they support their franchisees in ways that are unusual. You know, if there's a crisis in a um, Great Clip store, there are people at corporate that will be sent to help and make sure that that doesn't just look good for the Great Clips brand, but it, it supports the individuals working in those stores and the franchisees. That is a follow-through of this whole attitude right. that her organization has taken. And she talked a lot about really making sure that they have the right franchisees, but if you are someone who's thinking about buying a franchise, those are questions you can ask too. What is that relationship? How is the corporate um, going to respond when there's an issue? Well, and along those lines, another thing that she talked about was, you know, trying to build a community among the franchisees in a market. That's not usual. Mm-hmm. Right. In in many cases, the, the franchisees of another organization could be pitted against one another 
and just because of the not necessarily purposefully by what the organization was trying to do as the franchisor, but because they're not looking at the connections between those as relevant to the organization and how we move things forward. Right. And so it evolves to that place. Hmm. Lots to think about. Thank you so much, Mike Porter. And thank you to our sponsor, University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kaplan. And on behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Mm-hmm.